and would like to turn with me this Lord's Day to our text. You'll find it in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, where we read these words. Two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Disciples of Jesus Christ asked the Lord to teach them how to pray. Even though they had been raised in Jewish families and attended Jewish synagogues where prayers were constantly offered up to God, they wanted some form of prayer that would guide them as they approached the one true living God in prayer. Dear ones, prayer is the lifting up of our hearts and our lips to the triune God through our only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. In praise of who he is, in thankfulness for all that we have received from him, and in request from him of various lawful desires and needs that we have, all which is done to the glory of God. Now, there are many different and various prayers that uh, one will find in the scriptures, all which I believe provide uh, for us a guide in offering to the Lord acceptable worship. The prayer that we find in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, is one upon which we would do well to meditate, and upon one which we would do well to reflect. For it addresses our greatest temptations and sins in this world, which we must be ever vigilant and alert that we be not overcome by them. Let us consider together this Lord's Day the following main points from our text in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. First, the fervency of faith in prayer. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Second, the requests made in prayer, Proverbs 30, verse 8. And third, the reasons for the requests made in prayer, in Proverbs 30, verse 9. First of all, then, the fervency of faith in prayer, Proverbs 30, verse 7, where we read this. Two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die. This prayer is attributed to one, Agur, who is mentioned only here in Proverbs 30, verse 1, in all of the scriptures. Some of the Jewish rabbis and early church fathers thought that this Agur, they thought he was figurative a figurative reference to uh, and for Solomon. Others have understood Agor to have been a real historical prophet 
whose inspired words were included along with those of Solomon. I believe the second explanation would seem more likely to be the case. Inasmuch as Agor is also called the son of Jacob. If we understand Agor to be Solomon, then Jacob must be David, Solomon's father. But I would submit this is not very likely. For unless we have some very good reason for departing from the natural understanding of a passage, we should adhere to it, lest we become carried away with many fanciful interpretations the Spirit of God never intended. We see the fervency of faith in Agor's prayer, for he, according to our text, requires. Literally, that word requires is ask. He asks and prays that God will not withhold two requests from him. With the English translation there, requires, where in our English text it says, two things have I required of thee. I would submit this. This is not a prayer wherein Agor demands that God serve him, as if he, Agur, were the master and God, were the servant, were his celestial genie performing two wishes for him. Such blasphemy may indeed be heard on the radio or on the TV by false ministers who act as though they could put God in a box and require him to act according to their self-centered whims. Dear ones, that is not faith, but in fact, that is presumption. That is not humility, but that is pride. Such prayers are not uttered for the glory of God, but for the selfish desires of men. And I would have you know that God hates and abominates all such prayers. And even if God should give what is demanded of him by these preachers or by these false ministers. It is given not as a blessing, I would submit, but as a judgment to them. In Numbers 11.4, Israel demanded that God give them meat to eat, for they were sick of the manna. God gave them what they wanted. But along with the quail, God sent a plague that consumed them, even as they chewed the quail with their teeth. Thus, dear ones, let us never demand from God what we want as if he existed simply and merely to serve us. Lest he give us what we want, but give it in his wrath and his anger. Now, in our desire to avoid all presumptuous demands, let us not go to the opposite extreme wherein we fear even asking God to meet our needs and to fulfill all of our lawful desires in his good time. Agur confidently brings his two requests to the Lord because he knows that he is praying according to God's will, God's revealed will. And John tells us, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5.14 that if we do pray according to the will of God, we know that our prayers will be heard and answered that if we pray according to his will, as it's revealed in the scripture. 
not praying according to a secret will, for we do not know what a secret will is until it actually occurs, but praying according to what he has revealed in his word. Dear ones, our Heavenly Father delights in the prayers of his children. He wants us to come to him to praise him, to thank him, and yes, to bring even our lawful requests and desires unto him. Not because God must be informed of what our desires are as if he were ignorant of them, but because he delights to meet our needs through his own appointed grace, namely prayer. Listen to the words of the Lord inviting us in various passages to come unto him with our requests as unto a father who loves us and cares for us. In Matthew 7:11, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? God will give us good things. So if we ask for something that's not good for us, He's not going to give it to us. That which he does give to us, however, is screened and filtered through his love, his infinite love for us as his children, so that what does come into our life, we can be assured, is intended for our good. Not for our hurt, not for our destruction, but for our good, for our refinement and sanctification in the truth, regardless of the trial or the affliction. We find furthermore that in Psalm 84.11 that the psalmist says that God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Again, no good thing. In James 4.2 we are encouraged to come to him and we have not because we ask not. The Lord is providing incentive after incentive to us to not delay to not run the opposite direction, but to come unto him with all of our lawful desires. Dear ones, we must not be afraid to approach our Heavenly Father through Christ our Mediator with requests befitting an omnipotent God and a sovereign King. If God delights to take Gideon's 300 and defeat 135,000 Midianites, are you afraid to pray that God will remove all sins and errors that divide Christians? That he will destroy all false religion? Is it beyond your imagination that God could do such things? That he will grant to us a multitude of faithful ministers and elders and deacons? That he will grant to us children who are faithful and standing for the truth. That he will give us sufficient funds as families. That we will not only be able to provide for our own families, but we'll have enough to help others in need and to promote the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are even authorized by Christ to be steadfast and constant in our lawful requests to God. <clears throat> Luke 18.1, there was a parable given. 
that was intended to teach us that we are to persevere in prayer and bringing our requests unto the Lord. It's about a woman who brought a continual request uh, unto an ungodly king. She wanted justice in a particular area, but he wouldn't hear her, and he, she continued to come. And the point of the parable is, if even an ungodly king will eventually give in and listen to the constant pleas of such a woman, how much more a God who loves you and cares for you, a God who has saved you and redeemed you and given to you all the benefits of heaven, how much more he will hear your cry and your plea. We're told to give God no rest in pleading for peace within Israel. And if that be the case, I would submit to you as well that we're not to give God any rest when it comes to overcoming sin in our life or any other lawful desire or request. Unless God supernaturally, as he did with Paul, reveals that he's not going to do something. That we continue to come before him. That we continue to beseech him as his children. And let us never forget the persevering faith and prayer of the Canaanite woman whose daughter was afflicted by an unclean spirit and who would not be shaken when the Lord was silent. She cried out to the Lord, Have mercy upon me. And the Lord answered her not a word. <clears throat> might just, for a brief moment, look there. Matthew chapter 15. And after the Lord... The text says, did not answer her a word. The disciples came and besought and saying, send her away for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this would seem a possibility to this woman if she did not have the faith that she did have, a persevering faith. This would have been a great discouragement to her. Here are the disciples of Christ, the ministers of Christ, are trying to chase her off. And Jesus even says, I wasn't sent uh, to minister uh, unto, unto those outside of Israel. And then she came and she worshipped the Lord. She bowed at his very feet and cried out, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. The Lord is using the description of the Samaritans, of the Gentiles, that of dogs, with regard to this woman. That's how Israel viewed them being. Not children of the covenant, but outside the covenant, unclean. And they were ceremonially ceremonially unclean. But this did not deter this woman who had a persevering faith. For she said, Truth, Lord, I agree. I agree, Lord, this is true. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. I'm willing to accept any crumb, O oh Lord, 
any little crumb that falls from the table. Even if I can't sit at the table, and even if I'm beneath the table, I'm willing to accept whatever crumb thou wilt provide. There is a woman with persevering faith. And you know, this persevering faith was rewarded. And Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This, dear ones, is the fervent faith of Agur that is manifested in his request that the Lord not withhold from him what he has asked. Persevering faith. Fervent faith. There's one more aspect of Agur's fervent faith which is manifested in his prayer here. He prays with a view to his own death. He says, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Prayer unto God, dear ones, that remembers and accounts that our days are numbered. That our years are like a dream in the night. Or like a vapor or mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. This is a prayer that will be fervent in faith. For it looks away from, the, from perishable man to the one true living God who is from everlasting to everlasting and to a mediator who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who never perishes. I used to think I was, in my younger years, that I was nearly invincible. Those times I was afraid to think of my own death. However, the older I grow, by God's grace, the more I realize that reflection upon my death is not some morbid exercise, but a glorious means of sanctification in my life. It gives me a sense of urgency in prayer and directs me to that which is truly important in my life, glorifying God and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you, dear ones, how fervent would your prayers be if you knew you had only one day left upon this earth? Would you find time to spend in prayer if you knew you had 24 hours to live? Dear ones, death is an appointment of which none of us will be late. It is an appointment that none of us can miss. A certain appointment with death should in fact make us ever humble before the Lord and fervent before God in prayer. For there are no second chances after death. None. Like Agor, may our certain appointment with death give to us a sobriety and a fervency in the prayers which we offer unto the Lord. Our second main point is this, the requests made in prayer. We find these listed for us in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. I would submit to you, dear ones, that this is a twofold request. First of all, a request 
for sufficient grace to overcome sin. And then second, a request for sufficient means to live upon this earth. First of all, then, a request for sufficient grace to overcome sin. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Agur prays literally, pluck out, tear out, or remove far from me vanity and lies. For dear ones, the sins in our lives cannot be dealt with as if they were guests whom we've invited for tea. They must be treated as hostile enemies who have invaded our mind, desires, and will, and who will utterly destroy us if they are not violently removed far from us. If we have developed a comfortable attitude toward our sins, like the Israelites who did not drive out the Canaanites out of the promised land, and as they were told to do by the Lord, our sins will gradually and eventually overcome us, as did the Canaanites with the Israelites. Is that not what or why we find such violent language used in Scripture when speaking of our duty toward our sins? We are told, note, Observe, listen carefully, we're told to crucify them. Violent language. We're told to mortify them. We're told to pluck them out as if we were plucking out one of our eyes. We are told to cut them off as if we were cutting off one of our feet. For dear ones, sin will not be satisfied with occupying one little small closet in your house. It will not be satisfied until it has occupied and destroyed every room within your house. I ask you today, do you view sin in your life as being such a hostile enemy? Until you view sin as such a destructive enemy in your life, you will not use the necessary means to violently pluck it out tear it out or to remove it far from you. You will rather play with it like a child playing with matches. But eventually, dear ones, you will be burned to such a degree that the scars from that burn will be difficult to remove from your life. This first request mirrors that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us therefore, dear ones, grow in our hatred, not only for the sin itself, but even for the temptations, the enticements, and the solicitations to commit sin. I would add, the removing of sin far from us cannot be accomplished in our own strength. For not one of us is stronger. Not one of us is stronger than the sin in our own lives. And even if one should put away some habit into which he has fallen without calling upon the Lord, his sin simply changes forms. It mutates and manifests itself inwardly or outwardly. 
by boasting in what he has accomplished. Dear ones, note that Agor pleads with God to remove his sin far from him. Not just to keep it a distance away, but far from him, out of his sight. Only Jesus Christ fulfills all the righteous demands of the law which we have broken. And only Christ died to remove far from us the guilt of our sin and the power of sin in our lives. And although the Lord grants us faith to lay hold of Christ and his promises and grants us repentance to hate our sin and to endeavor new obedience, it is God alone Make no mistake, it is God alone who removes sin far from us. We can take absolutely no credit or glory for this. That which is asked by Agor to be removed far away or to be cut off from him are these. Vanity and lies. Vanity means emptiness. For vanity promises us pleasure. Vanity promises us fun and excitement. Promises being cool or looked up to by our peers. But in the end, vanity is emptiness. It is hollow. It is futile. It is meaningless. Oh, dear ones, the devil is so good at knowing our weaknesses and telling us exactly what we want to hear so as to set a trap of vanity for us. We may be weak in the area of lust and vanity lures us away from communion with Christ and away from those means of grace which the Lord has set in our lives to keep us pure. Vanity lures us away from those safeguards, such as godly parents or a loving spouse or Christian friends to places, locations where our lust may be satisfied. Or we may be weak in the area of wanting the praise and acceptance of others. So vanity sets a trap for us in which we hear praise and receive acceptance from the ungodly who applaud us for doing what they want us to do. Oh, sure, they'll be behind us, clapping all the way, as long as we do what they want us to do. Only Jesus Christ, I tell you, of a truth today, only Jesus Christ can fill the emptiness in your life and mine. For he created us, and he died to bring life and to bring it more abundantly. You will not find, and I will not find, satisfaction and contentment and joy in the world. You will be burned. You can guarantee it. You will be burned. Or I will be burned. The devil promises fulfillment but delivers vanity and everlasting death. Whereas Christ promises fulfillment and delivers peace, joy, forgiveness, righteousness, and everlasting life. Agor prays that God would remove far from him lies as well. Lies that proceed from him 
that is, from Agor, lies that proceed from him in telling lies, and lies that are presented unto him, which he receives. Lies being contrary to the truth will only deceive and delude those who tell them and those who receive them. Dear ones, we should hate all lies because God cannot lie. It is contrary to his holy, truthful nature. Lies are sins that make it easy for us to continue in sin. We lie to ourselves that our sin is not so bad. We lie to ourselves that no one will ever know that the sin will not hurt us or not hurt our loved ones. And we will be able to stop the sin before it gets too bad. We receive lies when we accept also that which is false and contrary to the truth. Contrary to the truth revealed in God's word. When we receive false doctrine, impure worship, tyrannical church government, and whatever is contrary to God's law and commandments, it is a lie. Lies begin in our minds with the same temptation which Satan brought to Eve, hath God really said. That's where lies begin as they come to us. Did God really say that? From that point on, if we listen, it's a downward spiral. Lies attach the very authority of God and treat him as if he did not exist. They attack the very authority of God. Agur therefore prays that all such falsehood might be cut off, that it may be cut off from him, that it might be torn and ripped out from him. And so should we pray that all lies be removed far from us. But there's also a request here, dear ones, a request for sufficient means to live upon this earth. Not only a request for sufficient grace to overcome sin, but a request for sufficient means to live upon this earth. Agor now moves from a plea for sufficient spiritual grace to that of for sufficient material means. Note the order of these requests. For that which is most important is grace to trust Christ. Grace to repent of sin. Grace to love God and grace to obey him. That is most important to us. But it is not sinful, dear ones. In fact, it is according to the revealed will of God to ask the Lord to meet the physical needs that we have in this life. It is not unspiritual to pray that God meet our material needs. But carefully note the parameters laid out in Agor's prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Agor prays that the Lord would keep him from one extreme, or from the, the other extreme as well, from poverty and from Riches. Perhaps it is difficult for us to clearly understand what Agor means by poverty or by riches, at least in our particular context. For some may think of poverty as being unable to buy simply what they want. I'm really poor because I 
For example, my TV just went out and I, I can't replace it. I'm really poor. That's not poverty, dear ones. Poverty is not being unable to purchase the comforts of life, but rather being unable to purchase the necessities of life, like food, clothing, and shelter. Now, Agor prays that God would, in his providence, mercifully keep him from falling into such a state of poverty in which he and his family would go hungry, be without a safe place to lay their heads or suffer from lack of clothing. How are we to look the other extreme that's mentioned by Agor when he prays that God would not give him riches? Here it would seem, in light of what Agor says in, ver- in Proverbs 20, verse 9, which we'll consider in just a moment, that being rich means having the means to acquire essentially whatever we want in this life. How ought we to look, then, at that extreme of riches? Well, first of all, there's nothing sinful in and of itself with either poverty or riches. In the parable of Christ, Lazarus was a beggar who could not live without the charity of others, and yet he was righteous. Job was one of the wealthiest men in the East, and yet he was righteous. What is wrong with either of these extremes from Agor's wise vantage point are the temptations that would likely accompany either poverty or riches. And because Agor, you remember from the previous request, wants to be cut off from sin and from its temptation, he also prays that God would neither give him poverty nor riches. It's far more likely that we would pray that God not give us poverty, right? We're going to be praying for something we would be much more likely, Lord, don't make me absolutely poor. But far less likely that we would pray, God, don't give me an abundance of riches. Why? Why is that the case? Because we, by nature, do not like to be without anything we want. We want everything that we desire. Poverty is not going to get us there, but having an overabundance, an excessive amount of riches, is much more likely to give us whatever our hearts desire. You see, our sinful nature is never satisfied. However, God warns us in Scripture that we make it not our aim in life to seek after riches. Proverbs 23 Verses 4 and 5. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. They're here today, gone tomorrow. How much of our day is spent in craving more and more and more material riches. Agor isn't praying here to become rich. However, if in God's providence God blesses him with riches, he no doubt will use it for God's glory. Agor is praying to have enough 
for himself and for his family, and I would add enough to promote the kingdom of God, and even enough to help those who are in need. We see in 1 Corinthians 9.14, from even our New Testament scripture reading this Lord's Day, with regard to promoting the kingdom of God, that this should be our prayer, that God would bless us so that we can promote the ministry of God's word. For this is what brings salvation to, to mankind. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find in 1 Corinthians 9.14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so to be faithful as you are able to support the ministry of the word. But also to have enough to be able to help those who are in need as well. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, note, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Is that your desire? Is that your desire when you pray that God would bless you financially? Is it your desire that you will be able to meet your family's needs and that you will be able to meet the needs of the ministry within the church that you will be able to meet the needs of those who are lacking and go wanting. Those are all legitimate desires in praying for financial blessing. See, Agor is praying that God would provide his daily bread even as the Lord Jesus prays teaches us to pray the same thing in the Lord's Prayer. Agor, I don't believe, would in this passage be discouraging anyone from seeking to find a good paying job or from making a profit off of money that has been invested, but the goal of the righteous should not be to become rich. That is not the righteous goal of those who are godly to become rich, but to become faithful with whatever God chooses to bless us with. Why do you really want to financially prosper? Do you need to fall, and do I need to fall, upon our faces this day before God and confess to Him our covetousness and our thanklessness for what He has given to us? You don't have to have riches in order to be covetous. You can be without riches. You can be like that that uh, pauper or that beggar who could be very, very covetous. It's not limited to only the wealthy. The goal of the righteous, dear one, should be contentment in all cir- circumstances and in all situations, whether in gain or in loss. My desire is to find contentment and joy in Jesus Christ. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, the Apostle Paul said. That's what life is all about. We're going to leave all of our riches behind. We can't take those with us. 
but we can lay up for us treasure in heaven by the faithful use of those riches that we God grants to us here upon the earth. It's an interesting observation. If you were asked whether you were rich, very likely you would uh, view yourselves as not being in that category. But I can guarantee you that compared to the vast multitudes throughout the world today who are living in abject poverty, you are rich. We have not only our day-to-day needs met, but we enjoy so many of the comforts of this life as well. Try to convince those who go to bed hungry, who have little more than a hut in which to live, who have no shoes upon their feet or upon their children's feet, that we are not rich, who have fridges full of food, who have closets with clothes that fill them and shoes in them, who live in homes that are warm and drive cars from place to place, and they would laugh at us in unbelief to say we were not rich. That, in that sense, being rich is somewhat relative. And though we may be rich in that regard, I would submit, dear ones, that we are also a thankful for the riches that have been bestowed upon us. And we need to fall upon our faces and confess our thanklessness before the living God. Note finally the reasons for the request made in prayer in Proverbs 30, verse 9. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Why does Agor not pray for riches? Because he does not want to become so self-sufficient that he forgets his God. Fullness, dear ones, breeds forgetfulness. Excessive sufficiency breeds complacency. He does not want to fall in love with his riches and make them his God. And so he declares... If he were to receive and to crave these riches and God were to give them to him, he at least fears that he may say, Who is the Lord? His Lord and the Lord of so many today, those who are wealthy and rich, their Lord and their God are the riches. And he fears falling into that situation where he would cry out, Who is the Lord? Where he would forget the Lord is God. And that is why Paul gives the following warning to those who are blessed with an abundance of the riches of this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. 
laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And as I said earlier, I think we can all, in varying degrees, see ourselves as being rich and this particular admonition applying to us. What are we doing with our wealth? What are we doing with that which God has blessed us financially? The second reason is Agor prays. He prays this time that he not fall into poverty. Why does Agar not pray for poverty? Because he does not want to dishonor God and discredit his profession of faith in the Lord by succumbing to the temptation to steal even for his own food. He does not, uh, in this particular passage, say that he prays not to be poor, or he prays that he be not poor because he wants to avoid being punished by the civil magistrate. I'm sure he would not want to be punished by the civil magistrate, but he doesn't list that as the reason. He rather lists the reason as being that he not be brought so low as to have to steal. And he's not condoning stealing. He just doesn't want to be put in that position, that temptation face, and where he would be faced with that temptation to steal for his food, or to steal for food for his family. He doesn't want to be in that situation because he knows it would bring dishonor, disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that it would discredit his own profession of faith. You see, that's the motive of Agur in this prayer. I want to be as far away from sin and temptation as possible. Let me not be put into a situation whereby my poverty or riches I would bring to in days to come the wise and godly prayer of Agor. Please let us stand in prayer. O Lord, our God, God of our salvation, our provider, the God who sovereignly allots unto us what we need in his wise and good providence. Lord, let us not become unbelieving. Let us not become thankless for what thou hast given to us or not given to us. Let us not become covetous or envious. Let us, Lord, be content in whatever Thou hast blessed us with. Let us, Lord, learn contentment as Paul learned contentment. Let us be content whether we are in lowly circumstances, in losses financially, or whether we, Lord, are in uh, gainful circumstances where we prosper. We pray, Father, that our joy will not rest upon our financial situation, that our joy might rest in Jesus Christ, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
we ask our Lord and our God, forgive us of all of these sins and drive us, O Lord, into our Savior this day. We ask, Lord, that Thou would speak to all of our hearts where we have fallen short, where we have sinned against Thee, that we would repent and turn from our sins, that we would come to the Lord Jesus to receive His pardon, to to acknowledge, O Lord, that it is by Thy grace and Thy grace alone that we are not in such abject poverty. Father, to use all the resources which Thou dost bless us with for Thy glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.